Hey everyone, this is Keith from Lion's Den Audio. We produce SN Hell. A few folks have asked that maybe we take a little detour into SCTV, and I thought that might be a pretty fun idea. So today we're actually debuting a new sort of side project called Welcome to Melonville, and we're going to take a look at SCTV sort of with the same format we do with SN Hell. As the episodes are fairly short, it's just going to be myself and one guest. Matt will join me for at least one of these. So our plan right now is to do six of these and uh, see how people respond and see how much fun we have doing it and uh, and maybe go on from there. For those who, who do listen to SN Hell, it's not going to slow that down in any way, shape, or form, but this is just a little, maybe a little cherry on top. So hopefully you enjoy. Please let us know what you think down below in the comments. Uh, of course, like, subscribe, anything like that. Um, so far, it's been a lot of fun. We're having a great time doing both projects. Take care and enjoy the episode. Hello and welcome to Melonville. This is a little detour north of the border and we're taking a peek at SCTV. My name's Keith. I host the SN Hell podcast, which this is kind of a special edition of. Joining me tonight is comedy writer, a guy I did some improv with many, many years ago. I don't think we ever did sketch together. Certainly acted a fair bit on the stage. It's Kevin. Hello, Kevin. Hello, Keith. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and Kevin's one of our guest third chairs over at SN Hell. Always a pleasure. SCTV must uh, be something that uh, entered your wheelhouse on occasion. I remember watching it when I was younger, but it never really came into play until it started being repeats on Comedy Network, and I'd watch mm-hmm. it a little bit more back then. I always loved SCTV. I kind of like it a little bit more than Saturday Night Live, if that's um, if that's not blasphemous to say. But oh, I, absolutely I, not. I absolutely enjoy um, SCTV. The biggest thing I always wanted to do was actually go to Second City and actually yeah. like try to try to get into it, which never happened. Because, no, no, uh, I never really went for it. But I did work with a lot of amazing people that actually worked on the main stage at the Second City. Cool. Uh, one thing you can say about it is they bring out tremendous talent all the yeah. time. I'm more familiar with the Toronto-based Second City than I am Chicago-based, but uh, sure. It's just, it's absolutely amazing the kind of work that they do there. Uh, I'm just very happy to sit down and watch some classic SCTV. Like these are, you know, comedy mainstays that put Canada on the map when it comes to uh, comedy, especially sketch comedy, because I find Mm -hmm. the sketches written in SCTV are, they're a little bit more out there, but I find them more enjoyable, a little bit more solid than what you got from some Saturday Night Live episodes. So yeah, yeah, I was was really stoked to kind of jump back into this. Did you ever attend a show at Second City? I've never attended a show at the Second City, unfortunately. I never got a chance to. Um, I did perform at the John Candy Box Theater. My oh, cool. sketch my sketch group was able to do that um, nice. many years ago. One of our members went and actually started working at the Second City, which was fantastic. He is probably the funniest human being I've ever met in my entire <laughs> life. Uh, I miss doing improv. I actually started getting back into improv here in Peterborough, so we'll see how how that journey goes well our age group i'll tell you right now the the folks that are in their 20s right now and the folks that are in their 70s right now um 60s and up i guess like we didn't have this kind of comedy everywhere we didn't have the opportunities really because we didn't make the opportunities (laughs) but like comedy sketch comedy improv they were dead when i was in my 20s you couldn't find 
anything to do. I'm in Eastern Canada. You were in Eastern Canada. You're in Toronto now. Yes, I'm in Peterborough now. I couldn't find a sketch comedy and I tried to start a couple and it just, it, it tanked, you know, it just never got audiences. And, and I don't, nowadays you're seeing them filling theaters. So it's, it's absolutely awesome. I don't want to say it's a hard art, art form to, to write for. It's based on all well, the times in some cases, but it's actually really based on the group of people you get together. Cause the, the thing yeah. that makes sketch comedy so well, especially when you're looking at SCTV is, they mesh so well together and you can even see it nowadays. A lot of them still work together doing like, uh, like for example, Shit's Creek. Yeah. And yeah. It, it kills. It's so good. You know, I knew SCTV existed as a child. My father used to talk about it, but I don't think I ever really got to see, I saw some retrospectives, but I never got to see an actual episode until I was about 14. I think. Yeah. I would say about the same too. 1990, whenever when comedy network came out, I had to have been like an early teenager at the very least. Because we got the showcase package first. I was around 13 when showcase came in and then comedy network was maybe three or four years later. So yeah, I would have been around 17 or 18. I think when comedy network came in. Yeah, that tracks in my head. Time yeah, was like 12 or 13. Yeah. 13, 14, I think. Okay. How old am I now? No, um, I'm, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going down that road today. <laughs> <laughs> One thing about SCTV that is different, and this is just more procedural than anything else. With Saturday Night Live, we have clear, you know, it's always been on NBC. Here are your episodes. They all pretty much, there's some, you know, additions and subtractions with different releases and syndication packages and stuff. With SCTV, um, you're going to get a lot of like bastardized versions (laughs) of episodes with things cut in, taken out. Certainly later when they get into the 90 minute format, some places played 60, some played 30. But in these early seasons, things are pretty much standard. The version I saw is actually a transfer of the old version that I used to watch on Showcase. Dave Thomas has a book out, uh, SCTV Behind the Scenes, and in the back he has a list of every episode and what sketches. And this tracks with that, at least this episode does. SCTV was shot in Global Studios in Toronto. This was a new venture for almost everyone involved. Most of the cast had limited experience with television. Some had never even really written before. It was more sort of Thomas talks about in his book. They would perform. They would audio tape their performances. They would tweak things from there. But a lot had never sat down and wrote out a sketch. Andrew Alexander, uh, Bernie Sollins. These were guys from Second City, the stage show, the producers. No TV experience there, really. And the technicians at uh, Global Studios were used to doing things like the news. And, uh, you know, like we see Mo Green doing the uh, the class. That's the type of thing that these global people were used to doing as far as makeup and lighting and all that stuff. These were not pros with sketch comedy on television by any means. It's still it's still kind of like a, a newer, I wouldn't say a newer thing, but a newer thing to like Canadian television, I would say. Because yeah. that was more of a popular format for like... Uh, British audiences to have like a kind of a sketch type show. Yeah. And I think what was done was like CBC stuff, really. I mean, you had Wayne and Schuster and you had uh, other things that popped in, but it was definitely a, a new venture for them. 13 episodes were ordered, followed by a second ordering. Originally, these aired once a month and then it gradually increased to the point where it was once a week. This is during seasons one and two. First season wound up being 26 episodes shot over 15 months or created over 15 months. So the idea of SCTV is that this is the world's smallest television channel. And they basically realize that if they're presenting themselves as a small television station, 
they can bring in parodies. They can bring in commercials. It's a good way of encapsulating everything you would want to do in a sketch show and also have like through through line plots uh, when wanted, required, whatever. It also, because it was a low budget station, they could also sort of hang a lampshade, as they say, on the low budget production that they were going to have because they had about, I think, five thousand dollars per episode. What do you think of the idea, Kevin? I think it's a great idea, especially when you you know you make the budget part of the character of the show. I, this is going to date me a little bit too, but at the same time, uh, a great example of something like this would be like UHF, uh, Weird Al Yankovic movie, where yeah. it's the same kind of concept. It's a low budget television station that uses that to his advantage, and it pulls out all of these like ridiculous shows and ridiculous premises. If you're thinking in, in terms of writing sketch comedy, that's just you know that's an open box, like that's a whole open world. You can do whatever you want, while at the same time trying to stay grounded in a we don't have a lot of money for things, but let's just let's just shoot for the stars and see what lands. And uh, we'll see it in this episode too, how they're able to make kind of an interconnected plot between all of the sketches and kind of tie it all together at the end, which I, I always loved about SCTV. I hated it when I was a kid, like the shitty production values and stuff like that. It really bothered me, but I love it now. I think some of it is just being Canadian too. And, and there are shows produced on, dismal budgets especially in the 70s and 80s and they're embarrassing to watch so there was some of that in my early years but at first sctv all these years later it works so well what i love about sctv and i think this can be said about any canadian show it has that kind of if they could make it a filter be like the canadian tv filter like it it has a specific look to it that like doesn't matter what year a tv show is made when you watch it and you you can recognize that look it's like oh this is made this is a canadian tv show not made in canada this is specifically made and aired in canada there's a difference (laughs) between the two i used to think there was a different filter for ctv and cbc (laughs) (laughs) like i still think that this is like to me this is more the cbc filter Whereas the CT modern times, the CTV film, I can't watch it. And oddly enough, like I remember Veronica Mars. Do you remember that show? I do remember Veronica Mars. That's it the, had this. It was a successful American show, but it had the CTV filter. And I could never watch it. I heard it was a great show. Well, it's just it's like a weird modern esque filter. Like it's like almost plastic. And it was just the way it was shot. There was just something about Veronica Mars. But I yeah, just, I mean, like Littlest Hobo had the old CTV filter. But uh, I always think of it as being slightly different than like Wayne and Schuster had a very different look to it. Um, and, and SCTV is similar to the Wayne and Schuster filter. David Steinberg show too is another one had that. <laughs> are you, you're not bothered by the uh, low production though, are you? Not really. No, I can't speak for Kevin as a child because my, you know, my memories are not that great when it comes to stuff like that. But at the same time, I'm never really bothered by a show. The only thing that would really bother me is the, um the canadian filter um and at the same time it didn't bother me as much just be like oh this is made in canada cool uh and then like i would adjust my perception of how good the show is going to be which nowadays is a little bit different like i'll adjust my perception be like i probably know someone that works in this show yeah or or somebody has done background work that i that have done this show or something to that effect original cast we have uh, i'm going to throw out some names and uh, just respond to each based on how you know them and if you like them kevin now we have john candy Oh, of course. Everybody, I don't know anyone that doesn't like John Candy. He's, National he's a, treasure, eh? He should be on some of our bills. That's how much of a treasure he is here in Canada. He did get a stamp, didn't he? I want to say yes. I think so. Beloved guy. 
passed away far too young. And uh, I know a lot of people, when they mention sad celebrity deaths, John Candy is always at the top of that list. Actually, there's a sketch in this episode because I was watching it with, with my wife. Uh, and uh, as funny as it was, there was a bit of darkness to it just based oh, on yeah. that. Yeah. Joe Flaherty, probably of this cast, the last one I could sort of recognize and know. I was around 12 or 13. He started, this is certainly not the highlight of his career, but a uh, YTV's Maniac Mansion, if you remember that show. He was the star. That's um, oh, that's literally the earliest thing I can remember him from. And I loved Maniac Mansion. That show was yeah. ridiculous. I, I thought it was great at the time. I kind of want to rewatch it one of these days. Uh, he was tremendous on it. George Booza was his son who... His son, who was grown up, like he—he, he, it was an experiment gone wrong or something, wasn't it? Yeah, Turner. Turner, wasn't it? All I remember is he has an uncle who turned into a fly. Yeah, he'll—he'll he'll appear later. That actor comes into SCTV down the line. Eugene Levy. I mean, Armed and Dangerous was the first thing I knew him from as a kid. I, I couldn't be happier with somebody sort of blossoming late into a superstar, eh? Yeah, no, he's amazing uh, in terms of most of the stuff he's done. I'm more familiar with him from Christopher Guest movies. Yeah. Like both him and someone else in the cast we'll talk about shortly. Absolutely love everything he does. He is, again, he's one of our more um, well-versed comedians from Canada. And he's just, even his son, they're just, uh, it's like a, mm-hmm. it's like a dynasty, if you could say, like a comedy dynasty. They're so, they're just so talented. Much slower build for Eugene than the rest, though, you know. I, I mean, we I knew him here just from different things, but like it was American Pie, I think, that really put him in the zeitgeist, right? Yeah. Outside of um, the smaller things you might watch, like I say Christopher Guest is what I know him from, but I first saw him um, that I remember was American Pie. Yeah. The Bride of Boogity, if you remember that one. He played the <laughs> bad guy in the second Disney Mr. Boogity movie. <laughs> um, can't Andrea, him. No, can't he can't play. I, no, I can't. Oh. I cannot place that horror movies for children. It was like a a precursor (laughs) to like, are you afraid of the dark goosebumps stuff? It was brilliant. Uh, I mean, I rewatched a few years ago and was let down, but my kids watched it with me and they were blown away by it. So still holds up for the right age. I'm Andrea Martin, who is truly unappreciated. I think such a tremendous character actor has done a lot up here. I know for a while she was the doing the bounty commercials. Uh, She did a, I think she played Frau Blucher in the uh, Young Frankenstein on Broadway. Uh, just a tremendous performer. In recent years, she was actually a character in uh, Only Murders in the Building, which is a, uh, if you've never watched, it's on Disney. A great show. I did not expect to like it as much as I did. Um, I've not watched it yet because I need the time. You know what I mean? To sit there and go through it. It is a bit of a time sink, but like, I got right into the show, like storyline wise, but in terms of like performances, um, just the general tone of the show, absolutely hilarious. Awesome. And when they added her in uh, on the later season, she is just spectacular. Catherine O'Hara, everything we've said about Candy and everything we've said about Levy, I think she has been churning out excellent performances since day one, but the world never really truly appreciated her until the guest movies picked up. And then of course, Shit's Creek. But I mean, she was awesome in Beetlejuice and even for what she did in home alone, she was quite good. So, Oh, okay. I, so for me, home alone, I have a weird story, like history with that because my first name is Kevin. Uh, but like, I can't watch the, the end of the movie when he gets home and he turns around and his mom is there like, Oh, uh, tears every time I can't like, I can't not. Oh, yeah. yeah. Honey, what's this? That's all I think. For that 
Yeah, no, that's uh, that's that's a hard one to get through. But she was uh, she was tremendous in that. And I remember in 1991 reading an article in like, do you remember the TV guide that used to come with the newspaper? Yes, yes, I do. It was it was basically a like, why isn't Hollywood using Catherine O'Hara? It was the article, and it was like this this like scathing thing of like, she is the greatest actor that's ever lived type thing. <laughs> and, it was, and you were only making her mothers and things. Well, here we are, you know. 30 years later and uh, well, beloved, she, respected everyone has ever worked with her. You know, you watch the, the, the commentaries on the Christopher guest things and it's all, they're just gushing over Catherine the whole time because she's fantastic. She just seems yeah. like a, a generally nice person. Um, she's also a really good voice actress as well. She's done a couple of things here and the most yeah. popular thing. My, my, a lot of people probably know her from is nightmare before Christmas. Yeah. Um, Sally, right. Was she Sally? Yeah. Sally. Uh, she's a, Absolute gem. Harold Ramis, uh, we have who has also passed away a few years back, 2020, I think. Best known to us is Egon, but he was the guy behind things like uh, Animal House and Caddyshack and uh, uh, Groundhog Day and Stripes. And I mean, his resume as a writer director, not to mention actor, was uh, is tremendous. He was the creative. He was the head writer and the uh, creative force early on in in, in SCTV. Uh, we only get him for about a year on screen and uh, two years as a writer. It's it's sad what happened, uh, how he passed away. But at the same time, like, yes, I know him as Egon, but his, uh, his Stripes is such an underrated movie. More people need to talk about Stripes. Like yeah. know, when, you, when they talk about Bill Murray and Harold Ramis working together, it's always Ghostbusters. But I don't hear enough about Stripes. Super entertaining movie. That's like, you know, Ghostbusters is trying to be pulled off as a, I don't want to say as a family comedy, but it's like, you know, more of a, a goofy type of comedy, whereas uh, Stripes is a little bit more hard edged. Yep. And I, I think it got, uh, let him shine a little bit more. Um, like he's a character actor here and there. Like he, Egon is fantastic, mm-hmm. but I just, I felt like he came into his own a lot more with Stripes. And finally making up the cast, Dave Thomas certainly goes on to be a superstar. Thanks to strange brew with future cast member, Rick Moranis, but also such a great resume of, you know, guest appearances, uh, he was tra- he was he was one of the only good things on Grace Under Fire for a long time. Um, <laughs> tremendous few episode arc in uh, Arrested Development and and a very good writer as well. I enjoy Dave Thomas, although I'm more of a um, you know Strange Brew uh, aficionado when it comes to him. I'm sure I'm familiar with some of his writing credits like and stuff I've watched, but in terms of um, him being on screen, it's mostly like guest uh, guest character roles and like various television shows and, and sitcoms and stuff but he never fails to make me laugh though when he's there yeah yeah these guys were all veterans of the second city troop in toronto except ramus uh he came from los angeles and chicago's uh, troops and when i say vet i mean all vets uh, dave thomas had only been there for a very short amount of time ready to jump into the show yeah let's do this all right our very first sketch is uh lasermatic quick flash so Dave Thomas plays a pitch man who is advertising the Lasermatic Quick Flash. This is a space-aged flash attachment for a camera um, to combat low lighting. He demonstrates the camera on a group of folks that are sitting uh, in a studio. It's mainly cast members. And the flash on the camera is completely blinding. And as Thomas shows the high-quality photo, you can hear the cast kind of yelling and screaming, you know, my eyes in the background. I enjoyed this. It was, what a great way to start it off, right? It's very high energy, and um, I I just love goofy premises. Just you see how ridiculous the prop is that he's using for it. 
uh, and then just the, the quick little special effect. And then, you know, the, the screaming in pain kind of sells it. And it's, it's not very long. It's like, it's just, it's perfect. It's just, it's there, it's done, it's gone, but it's still funny as it's going out. It's, it's really good. Now this is obviously like a flashlight or a floodlight with some lighting gels stuck on the end of it. It's funny. And it's very much indicative of what we're going to see like budget wise and stuff. Um, Thomas actually talks about being really pissed off when he saw the prop in his book. Um, he was an ad copywriter for Coke, and you can see his experience with advertisements throughout this show. It's interesting because he made the jump from advertising. Don Novello from Saturday Night Live also did. It makes me wonder, like, how easy is it to go from advertising to farce? Because you know? <laughs> some <laughs> of these guys make that transition pretty easily, right? Well, because you have to be like loud. Well, I don't want to say loud and obnoxious, but you have, you know, you're trying to sell a product, and you have mm-hmm. to kind of exacerbate everything everything has to be larger than life yeah. uh, which can also really help with comedy especially like sketch comedy when you're putting together like ridiculous characters and ridiculous uh situations so it really does add to well, the the ridiculousness of it all so we're now off to sunrise semester and this is our first peek at harold ramus's mo green mo green the character will sort of change his role a bit but he's always kind of uh you know the sweaty skeezy guy at this point, he's a leftist accountant teaching a course uh, for, for home. Um, ASN, uh, locally, again, we're, we're, we're being uber Canadian here. We used to get these on ASN, the Atlantic Satellite Network, first thing in the morning. It would be these classes from the University of New Brunswick. And they, they really looked like this. Uh, <laughs> anyway. Oh, my God. You're, do you remember these? A core memory is unlocked. Yes. Um, they would be on like really early in the morning that I remember like the, the kind of the opening crawl, like how it starts up like clockwork. Like, oh, I got to change the channel before this starts. <laughs> yeah. Amazing discoveries. I've already seen this episode 90 times. You go to ASN and it's like, welcome to Humanities 103. From- <laughs> really dry. Really. Oh, my God. Yeah. <laughs> Mo Green is a leftist accountant teaching a, a home course. Fun little thing with a chalk brush where he pats and gets the chalk all over himself. He's talking about taxes and uh, he talks about employers and their tax shelters. And he starts getting very angry about employers having tax shelters where the working people can't. And then he starts venting about profit. And and he slowly reveals that he's quite a Trotskyite here. We then hear an announcer say that the show will not be seen tomorrow as Green continues to yell on. Um, I really like this one. Um, (laughs) I said, there's got to be some really strong, strong left-leaning accountants out there who go through this every day. <laughs> so I, and I mean, I like, uh, I like Mo Green as a character, and I, I like Harold Ramis's portrayal of said. It's just how unhinged he gets as he continues to teach the course. Like, I, I, I expect him to, like take his glasses off and just stare in the camera and just be like, listen, really listen. Like, it was really yeah. good. So. A testament to him as a character actor, like he he only needed like just a small amount of time to portray exactly what he wanted to portray, and it yeah. was perfect. He went from zero to a hundred in about three seconds. Yeah, and it's just that change in emotion. It's like super quick, and like you're engaged almost immediately. And then as soon as the sketch is over, it's like I was expecting a bit more, but I was satisfied yeah. with what I got. And kudos for the little graphic of the sun rising beforehand. I really enjoyed that little graphic at the beginning of Sunrise Semester. Our next show we see, or next bit, is Unnecessary Surgeon. And this is our first look at Joe Flaherty, who's announced as Joe Flatterty, I think, during the first season. (laughs) And Eugene Levy. Uh, Joe plays Dr. Jake Sloan. It's a doctor who frequently performs unnecessary surgeries. 
Eugene is a patient who goes in for a surgery to remove his mucous membranes, but he winds up getting his shoulders taken off as well. It turns out Eugene is a pro baseball player who won't get to play anymore. We then get an ad for a spinoff for Ted Gordon, malpractice lawyer, and uh, he's defending Sloan from malpractice as he uh, conducted a sex change on a patient played by Catherine O'Hara. And these shows air at Thursday night at 8 and 9, as many other shows will go on to add the two air Thursdays at 9. Um, I like this. This was funny. Might be a little more poignant in the States, I suppose, where you actually pay for surgeries. I really uh, I really enjoyed this. I thought Flaherty was nice and sleazy. And Thomas was uh, also sleazy, but a different kind of sleazy. I enjoyed it. At first, I, I thought I was going to portray him as more of an idiot. Like, he just he just doesn't know what he's doing properly. And then as soon as it said unnecessary surgeon, like, OK, I want to see where this goes from here. Uh, and then once you get to the second part with the uh, the malpractice lawyer, mwah, love seeing Catherine O'Hara do anything. So I, I was in for this. Honestly, this is probably one of my highlights of the night for a sketch, to be honest. It was, mm. just, it was just really good. A lot of laughs for me, like a lot. <laughs> it's high, just, points, high points for Catherine for climbing over the... <laughs> over the witness box try to get to him yeah there's a couple of moments where i it has that where characters kind of break a little bit like mm-hmm. I, I can guarantee somebody um, like if he wasn't facing towards her in the in the stand there i bet you dave probably broke a little bit there which you tried yeah. to jump over <laughs> we're now after the johnny larue show uh john candy plays johnny larue he's in the full classic red track suit it's an exercise show he does a couple sit-ups he gets some muscle spasms he grabs a sandwich from the fridge he mentions that a lot of women think he's gay, but he's not. Uh, and if he was, it was nobody's business. He then says that Charles Lawton was gay. He then demonstrates some head rolls, but he's, he's got a smoke lit for this. Um, and then he gets to be in a bit of pain. He does some running on a spot, but he's sitting in a chair as he does it. And he does some exercises for atrophied muscles, which for him amounts to opening the fridge and bending down. He gets a little bit of a stitch from too much, too much exertion. And uh, he sends on out. We get a voiceover for a show coming up called Police Gynecologist, which is an undercover look at the women who serve and protect. I will go on to really like Johnny LaRue. This one, as I find with a lot of the Johnny LaRue's, they almost seem like they're not written. They're like, okay, John, go do what you got to do. Certainly, I assume this is the one you were talking about where it's like, oh, Jesus, he's... Yeah. Yeah. We're watching and like... I, I enjoyed it, but I, you know, I just, I, I turned and looked at my wife. I was like, this is pretty dark. She's like, yeah, because, you know, how he, you know, he passes away later on in life uh, yeah. due to heart issues. And he's much smaller than he was, than he is like later on in life. Yeah. Um, but to be honest, I like his like kind of sleazebag feel to him. Like, you know, we need to get a, a fitness person for SCTV. Uh, let's just grab, you know, this guy. He yeah, seems like he knows what he's doing. <laughs> he owns a tracksuit. Let's put him on. <laughs> it seems it does seem like very off the cuff. Like they had like a layout for what they want or like just like a basic frame of what they wanted to do. And then they just threw him out there. I missed that police gynecologist thing the first time I listened to it. I had to go back and listen to it again to hear that because I was yeah. like, did I? Did I hear that correctly? Uh, Best blow line of that whole sketch was that. (laughs) And then we go to uh, SCTV AM News today, and it features Earl Camembert and Floyd Robertson. Uh, Floyd Robertson, longtime Canadian news guy, Lloyd Robertson, is being parodied here. And Earl Camembert is Earl Cameron. So anyway, Floyd, uh, Floyd, played by Joe Flaherty, gives a story about a devastating earthquake in China. Earl, played by uh, Eugene Levy, his story is about uh, a local government vetoing the construction of a rec center. 
Floyd then reports on issues at the Palestinian border, and Earl talks about a f- small fire causing $45 damage at a health food store. Floyd then has a story about scientists in London harvesting solar energy. And Earl, who is obviously getting jealous of Floyd getting all the big stories, talks about a herd of rabid caribou found outside the city limits. Floyd accuses Earl of making this up and says Earl now has to do a editorial comment. Earl, who has gotten increasingly pissed, says he just has a small safety editorial and there's nothing to it. It doesn't matter. Floyd tells Earl that he has to do it. There's a bit of a back and forth about whether or not he should do it. Earl, who's very annoyed, tells everyone that Floyd is living with someone and they aren't married. Egad. Earl and Floyd, for me, are kind of the, uh, pardon the pun, but they're the anchors of this show. Uh, these two come on, go on to really become favorites of mine. Their rivalry, their banter, <laughs> the way they completely disagree with each other on the air. Um, I really enjoyed uh, this. This was a great introduction to Floyd and Earl. What I like is it, it kind of emulates how news is nowadays where, you know, you don't even get a lot of local news. It's all, you know, national news nowadays. But like even here in, in Ontario, it's just all one newscast, to be honest. It's like the local news or even the national newscast will just tell you what's going on in the rest of the world. And then we'll talk about Toronto, even though you're watching like in the Maritimes. But it's just like it's such a stark difference between like what one person gets to report, and what the other person gets to report. And it's just I just like that. That, that hint of jealousy that he gets in his <laughs> in his voice and then it just gets more and more brazen as it goes on <laughs> i just love the, the I, I love the chemistry with everybody here on the show but the two of them just work so well together it's super funny at no point like does eugene levy's care or as an actor or earl say anything that makes you clear verbally that he's jealous of floyd it's all in the body language. Yeah. Well, they're, they're all amazing character actors. So you're just putting them all together to just, you know, 90% of the show for me is just how they react to each other, like how they how they speak, how they mm-hmm. move their faces, their lips. It, it makes a huge difference. I don't want to relate back to like Saturday Night Live, but it's mostly yeah. just in the it's mostly in the dialogue for Saturday Night Live for some of the characters they have. And yeah. Which is not a bad thing, but like the, the better the character they have and they have them here and there on Saturday Night Live. It's all based on, you know, physical uh, movements, uh, yeah. like their faces, their arms and their body. But like with SCTV, you can find pretty much any episode, point to any sketch and you'll see that in a lot of it, yeah. which, you know, Saturday Night Live can just have two people sitting there and talking. It's still funny, but it loses a bit of that um, immersion because yeah. like, I love physicality when it comes to any type of comedy it just works so well with it. And I I adore S- SNL, but there is an 80% chance that they would put the line, why do you always get the good stories in there? You know. Yeah. We now go to the Evelyn Wood speed talking course. And this is a parody of uh, Evelyn Wood's uh, speed reading course. This is as Saturday Night Live touched on it as well. I think Evelyn Woodski was the name. An uncle of mine met Evelyn Wood, the actual <laughs> Evelyn Wood. Uh, Catherine O'Hara does uh, does this. She speaks ridiculously fast. And goes into sort of making a speeding cassette or record sound. Um, she mentions that they're developing a speed thinking course, but it won't matter in the meantime, as you'll be speaking so fast, no one will know if, if you actually have time to think. This wasn't overly funny written wise. I mean, I've now seen several in compare and contrast, but Catherine O'Hara's talents speaking faster and faster and faster, then going into the tape speed, which the first time I saw it, I thought was actually an overdub, um, but it was just her making the noise. thought this was great. The the speed uh, speed reading and so forth, 
I want to say that's before my time because I have no idea who this who that woman was, to be honest. But seeing just Catherine O'Hara's portrayal there, really good, really entertaining. A little bit of a chuckle. Not super crazy, but again, it goes back to the, you know, the physicality and um, just like how she portrays herself. It's just not her sitting at the camera and talking. It's her yeah. like her body is also part of the the process, which is really good. We now go to the thing called backstage. And this is stories of the people backstage at the station. Joe Flaherty, he's playing someone from management at the station. And he's telling Johnny to check out his Nielsen reports. And we have one of those old fashioned sprocket joining dot matrix printer paper where it shows that uh, Johnny's ratings took a several foot dip. So that's from last week's uh, last time on. We cut to this week and we have a drunk Johnny um, consulting Mo, Mo Green about his finances. And when he sees he only has about $14 left, he accuses Mo of ruining him. Johnny's girlfriend or wife, played by Monica Parker, comes in and uh, tells him he needs help to deal with his self-destructive tendencies. LaRue is drunk and angry and storms out. This is one I didn't particularly enjoy very much. Um, I did like the the gag with the sprocket paper. I love seeing old dot matrix printer paper used in its time. But uh, this one kind of fell flat. I think it's mostly a bridge to get to something else later in the show, to be honest, which it, which it does. But it it's is, just yeah. um, a moment in time. Maybe they're trying to find something to, to fill the airwaves here or try to kind of like bridge everything together to kind of keep a narrative that goes to the end of the show. I did find when everybody was there watching him and, you know, she was he, you know, you need help or whatever. And it was like, yes, because they all watched him have sex. That was, uh, you know, a little chuckle there. But for the most part, a bit of a low point in the show for me as well. I'm not sold on this backstage stuff, to be honest with, you know, it kind of breaks the format, if you know what I'm saying. We'll see stuff uh, through all throughout. They're sort of pulling back their premise. You know what I mean? To, To tell us this, to show us this stuff. If it's supposed to be what's on the TV station, you know, this wouldn't be filmed in, in their fictional little world. I think it adds to the charm of SC- like it might not be everybody's cup of tea, but it does add to the charm of like mm-hmm. how SCTV kind of operates because, you know, they always have reoccurring characters that are, you know, people that are part of the mm-hmm. the actual network outside of the show. We now go to a Joe Flaherty impression of Gregory Peck, and he's uh, advertising Stop Those Depressing Ads. It's an organization trying to get commercials that feature starving and illiterate children off the air. Um, having grown up at a time where every ad break had things for like world world vision and foster parents plan and, and other things like that. I can totally see where this is coming from. <laughs> um, I had an uncle who used to say if he could donate $5,000 to get Sally Struthers off the air, he would do it. <laughs> um, not saying that these organizations are, are bad or whatever, but there was a point in time where these ads were everywhere. Um, Flaherty does a pretty good Gregory Peck impression. Uh, this was pretty good. I'd say it's a pretty spot on Gregory Peck impression. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, I can relate. You know, uh, when you're a kid and you're watching um, ATV and you got all your cartoons and so forth, and then it ends and then it's just a solid three hours of, a, you know, a World Vision Canada um, infomercial. Infomercial. Yeah. Like a, Alex Trebek and Rod Black had a really long one that used to be on. I don't know if you remember that one or not. Uh, Alex Trebek. Yes. I do. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I want, I just want to, I watch my cartoons. I just want a little bit more something to watch. Like as a kid, it's, it's a bit much as an yeah. adult, you know, part, I, you'd, I'd watch it a guilt, I guess is the best way to put it. <laughs> no, and I have donated thanks to those commercials, but, uh, but yes, it, it does take you out of the raccoons to suddenly. <laughs> <be>. <laughs> 
we now go to Masterpiece Theater. Uh, Joe Flaherty now gives a pretty terrible impression of Alistair Cook, and he's introducing uh, The Girls of Vienna, Part 12, I believe. It's the story of Betty Freud. Um, so this is an Ibsen teleplay that's adapted by, as it says in the credits, some BBC hack. This uh, demonstrates Henrik Ibsen's contempt for Freud. Ibsen allegedly hated Freud due to uh, having been charged for just regular conversations he had with uh, the psychiatrist and also how Freud treated his wife. Harold Ramis plays uh, Ibsen, who we just hear as he's writing and his writing gets very erratic. And Dave Thomas plays one of Sigmund Freud's patients. Freud is played by Eugene Levy. And uh, Thomas just basically lays on the couch and does a bunch of uh, old school one-liner jokes about his wife's weight. Ibsen, in another letter, says that Betty Freud has gone nuts and she's hanging out with a Viennese novelist, uh, Anna von Thurstenberg, who uh, goes by the pseudonym and has adopted a lot of the mannerisms of uh, George Raft. Von Thurstenberg invites uh, Betty Freud to go on a trip. Betty won't leave the children, but she is considering it. Sigmund Freud comes in. Raft looks at Sigmund Freud's midsection and says he has one thing that he doesn't envy. Freud uh, calls Betty his little railway tunnel. (laughs) (laughs) As Freud rambles to himself, uh, Betty tries to to crush a can because earlier George Raft had crushed the can to show how strong he she was. And just as this is starting to heat up, Johnny LaRue roams in looking for help from Freud. The cast quickly tries to explain that they're not the real Sigmund Freud. And uh, they're, they're all telling Johnny that they, you know, they he's wandered into a set. Johnny LaRue, drunk and angry, punches them all out, as well as a random sheik that just kind of roams in on the set. Um, and then LaRue storms out of the studio. This, I mean, the first half of this is very, very heady, extremely well performed. But, I mean, there's a lot of, like, a lot of jokes in there I, I didn't get, but I, I could kind of recognize that they were jokes. But the thing about the railway tunnel had me in stitches. Oh, my God. I couldn't stop off at railway tunnel. Just remembering yeah. it. As I soon as you got like the, the first part with uh, Sigmund Freud and, and Dave Thomas was funny. I enjoyed that. Uh, Hailed Ramis. He just eventually just dips his finger in, in the ink and just like rubs it all over the paper. Oh, the I was, yeah. But once he got to Andrew Martin and um, Catherine O'Hara just going back and forth. That's what sold this sketch to me. I thought that was absolutely funny. She's there holding the baby and then she just gets up and just drops it onto the floor. Yeah. And it just gets more and more ridiculous and absurd as it keeps going. And then the railway tunnel line just killed me. Oh, my yeah. God. Yeah. But then like her quick back and forth with uh, with Freud was perfect. I really mm-hmm. enjoyed that. When it got broken up by John Candy, I was a little upset, like by, well, LaRue as his character. Yeah. Was. Uh, but then once again, it just goes back to being just absurd and ridiculous and uh you know i I wish i would have got to see more of the masterpiece theater but at the same time i was happy with how it ended and again it goes back to the that interconnectedness that um sctv episodes have Mm -hmm. uh, that kind of make it feel like it's a realistic uh network that's just like kind of on the, the the fringe of going completely tits up and going crazy getting shut down getting arrested yeah yeah Um, We now go to the SCTV PM news and Earl is about to finally report a big story about India dropping an atomic bomb on Pakistan. But Floyd interrupts him with a more important bulletin about Johnny LaRue's rampage. Um, And he says this is going to be a big deal for SCTV. Felt bad for Earl here. (laughs) 
like just you could see the disgust on his face. Yeah, and then <laughs> it's over. And yeah, I. Uh, but then part of me was like, did Earl just make up the a bomb thing? <laughs> <laughs> it's never it's never brought back again. It's just done. It's over. And then, yeah. <laughs> We end the show with words to live by, and this features Andrew Martin as Joni Newton Buffy, astral hippie type. I didn't even get the rest of the line, but she starts by saying, you could be a Jew or a Leo. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, She talks about watching snowflakes until there was about six feet of snow, and snowflakes lose their identity when they're in a big pile. She wants to feel something and wants others to feel something, too, and to feel something real. And this is all done in a very hippie-style chat as the show goes out. I got to be honest, like I, I laughed a lot during this. She reminds me a lot of people I know and have worked with. I, I didn't pay so much close attention because I think this one is all about vibe and performance. But there were some funny lines in there. Like Instagram influencer type thing nowadays where they would say oh, something. Man, yeah. you know, this is just something I read on the back of a sugar packet, but it really spoke to me. The, the line about the snowflakes, that went hard. Uh, mm-hmm. on my soul i won't lie i kind of I, I felt something there but uh otherwise yeah it's a nice little like calm way to end the end the episode you kind of want more after that and it's just the perfect amount of time so you know like it, yeah. it gets people coming back for the next episode yeah yeah and a strong performance to to end the show too this was one of the better segments of the night as far as acting is concerned so that's the show kevin what was your favorite bit of the show for me, I'm I'm probably going to go with Masterpiece Theater. Pretty much most of the cast there working with it. Um, it had a criminal, criminally underused and uh, Andrew Martin. I thought she wasn't used more like she should have been used more in the episode, to be honest, because she is so good at what she does. But no, it, it, that was probably my favorite part of the whole the whole night. Nice. I went the complete opposite and I went just with Sunrise Semester. Mo Green, uh, the, the idea of a uber leftist accountant tickled me far too much uh just uh, i can't help but wonder how many of them are sitting around out there right now so pissed off that they're you know (laughs) helping someone keep the books right you know (laughs) did you have a least favorite of the night if i had a least favorite it probably would have been oh man i gotta think about that because i i I generally enjoyed everything on the show it would probably be the speed the speed talking like i i love i love Catherine o'hara but out of everything that was there tonight it was probably the one that got the least amount of laughs for me. Um, even yeah. backstage, as as rocky as it is, I still got a bit of enjoyment out of that. Yeah, I'm I'm actually going with backstage. Uh, I know it set up the ending, but uh, I don't know, it didn't work for me. So, who was your favorite? Did you have a favorite cast member tonight? I, I think I did. <laughs> uh, I'm probably gonna go with uh, Eugene Levy because he oh, nice. because he was in all of the sketches. But um, it was a nice range of all the different things he got to play. So he had mm-hmm. you know playing a stray man um, with the, the newscaster. And then you get his kind of ridiculous portrayal of Sigmund Freud. And then just like the regular Joe Schmo, Joe Schmo pro baseball player. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, you, you get a little bit of everything with them in this. And I, I'm, I went with a different person for the same reason. I went with Joe Flaherty, just based purely on the range that we saw tonight um, from him. Uh, but I mean, I don't think you could have gone wrong with anyone tonight, really. Well, Kevin, thanks so much. Eh? I really appreciate you coming in and, and chatting about this. This was a lot of fun. Pretty uh, good way to sort of look at the other side of things as far as popular sketch comedy at that time. I love any excuses to do and watch SCTV. So if you end up doing more, here in a heart. But for everyone else, if you want to like, subscribe, uh, let us know what you think of this uh, SN Hell. We've also got on 
in a very weird twist of fate on our YouTube channel, the Lizzie Borden audio trial. We've got some <laughs> old plays up there. Somebody described it as just as like my the YouTube channel is just my stream of consciousness on that particular day. And I think that's the only way we can. <laughs> <laughs> Everything started as a as a as a response to keep me from going mad, mad, mad. I tell you during covid. Uh, well, I think the results uh, speak for themselves because, you know, going back and listening to some of the, the audio plays and even going back and listening to older SNL, the Lizzie Borden play or the Lizzie Borden trial is, uh, you know, everybody loves real true crime. Yeah. You know, this you're essentially just the, the stream of consciousness for everybody that was dealing with uh, COVID at the time because it was, you know, what wacky TV show am I watching and true crime. <laughs> yeah, ti- t- Tiger King was the yeah, nexus <laughs> where both met, right? Yeah. So until next time, thank you for joining Kevin and I as we revisit a town called Mellonville.